if you look at the entire, the whole part of money, charity money in the world, that people, foundation, governments, the whole money, mm-hmm. just 3% is used to protect the environment. Just 3%. And within this little 3%, a fraction of it is actually used to fight wildlife crime, which is, in my opinion, right now the most important threat to a lot of species way before climate change you know many many species will never see the effects of climate change because they will disappear before welcome getting there fans i'm your host alejandro garcia maya there were 27 million elephants in the early 19th century, but by the beginning of the 20th century, there were just 5 million. Today, only around 350,000 elephants remain. On today's show, we have Andrea Crosta, executive director and co-founder of Earth League International, the nonprofit intelligence organization leading the fight against wildlife crime. He has two incredible video documentaries, one on Netflix called The Ivory Game and the other one by National Geographic called Sea of Shadows. Please make sure to check them out. In this episode, Andrea and I go over the intricacies of the wildlife crime industry and he answers a number of questions such as, how do you take down the wildlife crime kingpins using intelligence tactics? How powerful is wildlife crime? Where did the idea for Earth League International come from? What are sustainable ways to reduce wildlife crime? And much more. Join us in our conversation. Let's do this. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Milano, Italy, but I was raised in Milano and I studied in Milano. And my first master's degree, which is uh, zoology and natural sciences, is from the University of Milano. So you studied zoology, you also mastered in that field as well. Yeah. And then yeah. when you left, you ended up doing security. Private. Yeah. I never really left that, the field of conservation. I was on a board of an Italian foundation. But then sometimes life takes you to unexpected places. And uh, I lost my mother when I was still young and I really need to make some money. So And it was not enough what I was getting from conservation. So... I jumped into business. I did another master's degree in business administration and innovation. I launched in 1998 one of the very, very first e-commerce companies in Italy, selling the best of Italy around the world. It's called the name was Think Italy. And I did that for three years until the Nasdaq crashed in 2001. So I almost lost everything (laughs) overnight. But then from that from those technologies, working with other high-tech companies, I went to other kind of technologies. And then, make a long story short, for 15, 17 years, I worked as a private consultant in between technology vendors or service providers, especially in the field of security, homeland security, anti-terrorism. I had a lot of clients, Israeli companies, European companies, American companies selling stuff, mostly technologies, to governments, to big clients. It was, it's a very weird uh, field. <laughs> and you, you know a lot of people, you know a lot of things, you heard a lot of things, you hear a lot of things, but it was cool. And I did that until about six, seven years ago, 
I was in Kenya with a client, actually. It was a Somali politician. And I went out to the bush with the rangers. I saw what was happening to elephants. And I thought, go. I mean, I have to go back to my original passion. I have to go back to my where my heart is. And uh, so I dropped everything. And I basically merged those two parallel careers. I cannot imagine two careers more different from each other, you know, conservation and science and investigation, intelligence, security, blah, 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 technology. But I merged them into one NGO. And uh, the point was in my vision was to create sort of the first intelligence agency for the planet because I saw a clear knowledge gap in terms of the way we fight wildlife crime, environmental crime. It's uh, so amateurs, basically. And I was familiar with other global threats like terrorism and narco-trafficking and weapons of mass destruction, organized crime. In all those threats, intelligence is at the very heart of the strategy to fight back. If you don't use intelligence, you just don't do it. It's incredible how those two worlds, without one, you wouldn't have been able to do what you do now. You know what absolutely, I mean? It's, absolutely. It's, it's amazing. So it's a very life. long circle, but yeah, absolutely. It took a while to go back to the point I wanted, exactly, with That's a lot amazing. of experience. And of course, a lot of, uh, by doing, you know, the, the work in investigation, like intelligence and like technology, as you can imagine, I met a lot of people and I got a lot of contacts. So when I wanted to do what I wanted to do with this new career, I knew exactly who to call and, wow. uh, That's and how to get to certain people. Well, I, so, yeah. We're going to go into every bit of what it is and the process <laughs> and all that. I wanted to ask you before jumping into, we usually, as a way to highlight a couple of the problems, we throw some multiple choice questions for our fans. Feel free to answer them. First question. In the 19th century, there were 27 million elephants. As of today, approximately how many elephants are there left? Very sad figures. A, 1 million. B, 10 million. C, 400,000. D, 5 million. So in the 19th century, there are 27 million elephants. And how many are left today? What do you think? Yeah, I know very well this figure. Unfortunately, is around 400,000 left, maybe less, depends from the estimate. Hmm. Yeah, so there was been, we wiped them out. You know, there were 27 million basically at the beginning of the 19th century, and there were already 5 million at the beginning of the 20th century. And so, now there are between, yeah, very and, few left. And that particular figure is according to World Wildlife Fund. Here's the second one. So in 2016, what was the approximate value or market size of wildlife crime, which includes illegal logging and fishing? A, 110 to 500 million. B, 11 to 88 billion. C, 90 to 260 billion. D, 10 to 100 million. What do you think? Yeah, is again C. According to Interpol, UNEP, and other actually others as well, is between ninety and two hundred sixty billion dollars per year. Is a is the third or fourth largest criminal enterprise in the world. It's that incredible. Is incredible. That figure is astounding. Yeah. Here we go. Last one, number three. Illegal logging accounts for what percent of logging in the Brazilian Amazon? A, 6 to 10 percent, B, 37 to 72 percent, C, 12 to 18 percent, D, 22 to 31 percent. Illegal logging accounts for what percent of logging in the Brazilian 
Amazon. Exactly. So in the Brazilian Amazon is goes up to seventy percent. It's uh, you know mind blowing. Wow. Okay, and that's and this particular research was done from the Chatham House. So let's talk about Earth League International. Can you tell us what does it do? What problem are you looking to solve, or problems are you looking to solve? With Earth League International, as I said before, I wanted to create something that doesn't exist at the moment, which is a real intelligence agency for the planet. As I said before, we are used to fight other global threats like terrorism or narco-trafficking with intelligence, with environmental crime, wildlife crime. There is no such a thing like a, as an intelligence agency. We have states locally that do a little bit of investigation here and there, but there is no such a thing like a central intelligence agency. And what does that wildlife crime division what is that made of? You know, how many people? So the idea is to, was to create the beginning of what one day I really hope would be bigger, of course, but to show that it's possible to put together such an incredible per- people and how important it is to get this kind of experience and skills. Unlike many other NGOs in our organization, most of our people come from those fields, are not conservationists, are not biologists, are not scientists, are crime experts <laughs> because we fight crime. We fight criminals and big time criminals, not just small fish. So we really need this kind of people. That's why in our crime division, we have a former FBI agent, we have a former CIA officer, we have crime analysts. So, and their task is to fight criminals. We just heard a crazy figure in terms of how big the crime sector is in wildlife. Can you give us some background history on the wildlife crime sector? Who are these usual suspects? You know, what type of crimes and are we talking about? And who are these usual suspects that you tend to go after? So the, I think the best way to understand wildlife crime, and it, it is also actually the way we work in Earth League International, is to look at the supply chain. So we are talking about illegal transnational supply chains of illegal wildlife products. Doesn't matter, it could, can be ivory, rhino horn, pangolins, timber, tiger parts, doesn't matter. They all have a supply chain, origin, transit, and destination country. And so usually it's at the very origin, you usually find smart traffickers exploiting poor people. Mm. In other words, they just offer these people an incredible amount of money to kill a rhino, to kill an elephant, to kill a tiger, to kill a lion. And they do it because they're very poor. Imagine in Africa, easily these people can offer four or five years of salary to someone who doesn't have a job and maybe have, has 10 people at home waiting for him just to kill an elephant. Wow. Temptation is huge. And the traffickers use exactly that to, and the poachers get all the risk, of course, because the traffickers never get the risk. So the, the poachers are risking their lives, are risking jail to get killed by rangers. And this is the beginning of the supply chain. So once uh, they manage to get, uh, I don't know, rhino or, or ivory, then this commodity, so to speak, begins the journey all the way to the final market, which in these days, I'm afraid 80, 90% of the times is China. Can you take us through the process of how you go about discovering a crime, finding these criminals, and 
capturing them and, and in essence, bringing them yes. to justice? How, how does that actually work? First of all, it's important to say that whatever we do in the field, it's in our mission to do what we do to help law enforcement to do a better job. It means that we share a lot of information with law enforcement agencies around the world. Mm. And it's part of our mission. So we also do, we also publish public reports and, and we publish actually amazing public reports for, for the public, for the people. We also do documentaries, but we work a lot also behind the scene and we publish confidential reports that the public that cannot see and, it, and they're just for law enforcement agents and with, you know, with names and telephone numbers and a lot of undercover material. You created an approach that you call RISE, R-I-S-E, yes. to achieve your yes. goals. Can you explain how that works and what that is? Yes. RISE is, uh, is basically a, a working methodology. And, and the reason we put it in words, actually, is, was because I needed to explain not only externally, but also internally in our organization, what is our work and what are the main four blocks of our work. Mm. The R stands for research. It always starts with a lot of research on whatever you are about to collect information. It can be a situation, like for example, what we've done uh, in Mexico on Totoaba trafficking that you can watch in the film uh, Sea of Shadows. It can be a specific person, can be a research on a network or in a country. So we spend a lot of weeks, if not months, just doing researching. Then when we feel ready, we start with the I of the rise. I, I stands for intelligence and investigation as well. So this is field work. We deploy our investigators. They are specialized in recruiting and building network of informants and sources. And basically, intelligence is about harvesting information 24-7 forever. You have to know everything about those people and how they do it, when they do it, why they do it, everything. Part of this job is done by undercover teams that pretend themselves to be traffickers or pretend to be businessmen or buyers. And so they get very, very close to these, uh, to the kingpins, to the traffickers. They very often, they become good friends mm. and they are trained in the use of undercover video recorder, video recording devices and audio recording devices. So they usually come back home with hours and hours and hours of conversation with those mm. criminals where, during which they explain the whole thing, basically. And then uh, the S of RISE means, stands for share, meaning there's a and share includes also a lot of analytical work that we do back home. We have uh, two, three crime analysts working full-time with us. They're young, young people, incredible smart people. They are. They use different softwares, and for weeks they work on the information coming from the field, making sure that we understand what. Sometimes you collect so much information that actually the bottleneck is the analytical part. <laughs> and then finally, we share the report with law enforcement and the public, but especially with law enforcement. And the E of Rise stands for enforcement. So. That's not in our hands, that we get all the way to, you know, we do the research, we do intelligence and the work in the field, we do analytical work and sharing, and then we want to see enforcement. So law enforcement agency acting, or at least starting to work on a specific problem, because very often when we start working with law enforcement, we realize they don't know anything about it. 
So the process starts with learning what is your problem that you have in your country and learning those about these criminals that are doing all sorts of things under their nose. And then the desire is always to see law enforcement arresting people, of course. In the real world and in, I guess, in your world, what are the most important or powerful tools that you use? You mentioned like recordings, right? Like audio. Yes. But are there others? Is there other type of technology that is now available that you are putting to use to help you with your process? Yes. I mean, we are very advanced in terms of uh, undercover hidden video and audio recording devices. We work with really cool people that help us to hide these gadgets very well on our people or put it simply into some objects. And this is a very important part because uh, you can easily get into serious trouble if they find out that you are carrying some kind of you know, undercover device. So then we use uh, a couple of apps, a couple of encrypted emails, just to make sure that we exchange information with each other in a safe way, in a secure way, again, untraceable. Then back home, our analysts use uh, two, three different softwares. With one of these softwares, we also do a lot of work in the, the so-called deep web, meaning that we have a really cool cyber team, basically, and they are really good in connecting information coming from the field, for example, names, names of companies and telephone numbers with existing information on the web, in the net, on the net. But sometimes it's hidden information. It's a, we, of course, we always we never do anything illegal, but there's a lot of information on the net in the deep web that you don't get to this information simply with Google. You have to look for it. Mm. So it's, it's not just about, of course, technology, but it's, a, it's about experience and people. And there, do you find yourself in the field, in the streets, having these conversations with these individuals? Or is your role now more in the background organizing and structuring and managing the team? Where or is it both? Yeah. I'm less and less in the field. Also because we made a conscious decision a few years ago to start collaborating with top uh, media partners in order to produce uh, important documentaries. So we did The Ivory Game uh, about two years and a half ago, and we did Sea of Shadows now with National Geographic. So, And I'm in both films. So of course, my faith now is known and I don't want with my presence to jeopardize the work of my team of course what I like to do is whenever we start a project doesn't matter where it can be South Africa can be Tanzania Thailand Bolivia Peru at least once or twice I am in the field with my team because I need to see with my own eyes what they're doing what is the scenario over there you know what is like there otherwise it's very difficult for me to direct them from far away so that I like to do. Sometimes I meet the sources, sometimes not, but I have such a great team now. I'm so proud of them that I'm okay in the background. What do you believe are sustainable ways to reduce wildlife crime? Instinctively, you would think uh, we have to reduce demand, okay? We have to convince the consumers not to buy this stuff. Mm. And uh, in the past years, millions of dollars have been put by governments and NGOs into awareness campaigns and billboards with celebs and things like that. Unfortunately, working in Asia, working in China, you realize that they are not that effective, unfortunately. Mm. Yes, you reach millions of people, but reaching millions of people 
doesn't mean that you automatically change the mind of millions of people, especially if they've been doing that for centuries. What you need in China in terms of changing the consumer's mind is actually a full generational change. That's what we need in China. The young generation, young Chinese are already different, are already more similar to us. Oh, Unfortunately, really? the current consumers, yes, and we work with them and they're great people. But current consumers, you know, their parents and All grandparents, they don't change their mind just because they see a billboard. In China, they are afraid of only one thing, law enforcement. That's it. They fear only the government. And that's why my organization is focused only on law enforcement, because while we are waiting for a generational change, we need to do things now, okay? Because we are talking about, if we think about elephants, rhinos, tigers, pangolins, a lot of marine mammals, we are talking about five, 10 years, not 30. So we have to do something right now. And right now is not enough to do awareness campaign. It's also not enough to do anti-poaching. When you do anti-poaching, you just buy time. You don't solve the problem by doing anti-poaching. You're just keeping the animal alive for a little bit more. In the meantime, what we have to do is to go right in the middle, right into the supply chain and go after specific kingpins, specific criminals, and try to destroy those criminal networks from within. That's the only way to make a change, to, you know, to have, you know, to see a ripple effects all the way to ground zero where they kill the animals. If you, I keep, I say it all the times wherever they invite me to speak. If you keep doing and putting your money only in anti-poaching and awareness campaign without doing serious investigative and intelligence work, you will lose everything. You will lose the animals, you will lose habitats, and you will waste all the millions of dollars that you are now using. What has Earth League International been able to accomplish so far? What are some things you can share with us? Earth League International is, let's say, six-year-old, okay? Mm. So, we, we, so we are relatively young. Relatively young. Yep. The first actually two years, we spent just basically by fundraising because we started from scratch, from zero, very unique concept. So it was not easy to convince donors and people that, you do need intelligence work in order to fight these things. So we started operation in 2015, 2016. We conducted dozens of intelligence gathering missions in around 14 countries around the world, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We produce a lot of confidential reports. We are currently sharing information, confidential information with about a dozen law enforcement agencies around the world in the U.S., in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, and Africa. This work has resulted in the arrest of uh, 12 people, including two of the most important, the most significant wildlife traffickers in, uh, in Southeast Asia. And these 12 individuals, and, uh, to your point, these, you only focus on the big guys, on the big... On yes, the big yes. Dealers. We do not, uh, exactly, we do not count uh, as an arrest a poacher. I'm sorry. Right. I know it's important to arrest poachers, but it will be replaced the same afternoon. You're going after those that are controlling the whole operation. Absolutely, yes. We are, and all those 12 people are all Asian traffickers or anyway, kingpins or people who, you know, who is able to invest money, who is providing the, sometimes the weapons to the poachers. There are certain kind of people. I would say most of them are actually located in Southeast Asia because Southeast Asia is the most important wildlife trafficking hub 
on the planet right now. Mm-hmm. They are the traffickers over there that have been working for years. They are specializing in importing illegally, of course, all kinds of products from Indonesia, from Africa, from Latin America, and then smuggle into China through different ways. Also, because China and the Chinese government, the Chinese custom, in the meantime, got a little bit better in finding these products at, at their entry point in China. So the international traffickers are now using other countries sort of proxy to get into China easier. And so they use, uh, of course, uh, Vietnam, they lose Laos and Thailand and Cambodia. Sometimes they use Japan, sometimes they use the Philippines, no, different ways to get inside inside China. And also from an awareness point of view, in uh, let's say that in three years, we, uh, together with others, we were in, in the two most important wildlife documentaries of the past three years. One was Ivory Game and the other one was Sea of Shadows. Someone listening to this, hearing your mission and your vision, and they want to support, what are ways in which people can help? Well, problem is that it's not easy to fundraise to fight environmental crime. Because it's, let's face it, we do not produce pictures of cute animals and baby elephant orphans and things like that. It's not mm-hmm. our job. Mm-hmm. And the whole field is very emotional. The whole field of conservation is very, very emotional. So people give money out of emotions because they cry, because they are sad about a situation, because they see an animal, or the picture, or a video. If, if you think about it, in general, it's not easy to fundraise to protect the environment. You know, if you look at the whole part of money, charity money in the world, that people, foundation, governments, the whole money, mm-hmm. just 3% is used to, to protect the environment. Just 3%. And within this little 3%, a fraction of it is actually used to fight wildlife crime, which is, in my opinion, right now, the most important threat to a lot of species. Way before climate change. You know, many, many species will never see the effects of climate change because they will disappear before. So it's not easy to fundraise. You know, we have maybe eight, 10 very, very large NGOs, uh, environmental NGOs in the world, and they capture probably 90% of the money out there. So in general, it's not easy to fundraise. And that's why we put, you know, we, we do our best. But the second thing I usually ask people to do is especially on social media, is to start talking about intelligence and investigations applied to conservation. Start getting interested, but also understanding the value of intelligence to fight environmental crime. To understand that you cannot jail poachers forever because there is potentially hundreds of millions of poachers in Africa ready to kill anything for a bit of money. Mm. That's not the way to go you have to find a way to go after the kingpins, after the big fish, after real criminals. And so I would love to see on the net, on social media, people talking a little bit more about that because it's important also for the government to understand that they have to do it. Is there anything did not ask that you would love to share? Anything that we didn't get to cover? Or just a message? Uh, we have an interesting... for you. Mm-hmm. We have an interesting project that we launched five years ago. It's called uh, Wild Leaks. Wild? And uh, Wild Leaks, mm-hmm. Leaks, is one word, Wild Leaks. And, and uh, Wild Le- Leaks is... Like L-E-A-K-S or Leaks? Yeah, yeah, like, uh, like WikiLeaks, but Wild Leaks. Okay. 
but we have we're very very different from from WikiLeaks. Actually, we are the opposite yeah. of we. Nothing to do with them. We, again, we are here to help government. Got it. So wild wild leaks exactly. So wide leaks is the first whistleblower initiative dedicated to environmental crime. So we launched it five years ago. We are about to publish in a month the first report ever since we launched it. It's more than a website, but the website is built on Tor, and the idea was to create a safe space where people with information around the world can send this information to us. Well, that's this week's episode of Getting There. Thank you all for listening to the Getting There podcast. Very much appreciate it. Be sure to visit gettingtherepodcast.com to learn about more leaders solving the world's most pressing problems through our videos, games, blogs, and more. If you are or have a friend who's a social impact leader using scalable technology to find sustainable solutions for world-pressing problems, please reach out to my team and I at guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. That is guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. Catch a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed the show and want to spread love back to my team and I, please make sure to subscribe and rate us. Have a wonderful day. And as my grandfather would say, adelante y arriba.